throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In short, we could say that without God's gracious intervention, we all would be completely spiritual dead. And on our own, it says we will never seek after God. Like Adam and Eve, indeed, we run and hide from God. So depravity is a universal disease which has infected all of us from conception, each and every one of us. No one is immune to this disease. David knew it. In Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, David knew that it wasn't just, sin wasn't a matter of simply making a mistake. He says that his offense with Bathsheba was actually against God himself. But he also knows what the solution must be. If it's a dead heart, he knows he needs a new heart. And so in Psalm 51, verses 10 through 11, David asks God, he begs him, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David knew that his sin came from a sinful heart, and that he needed a new heart. And so and here in our passage in Ephesians 2, when Paul says that we walked according to the course of the world, according to the power of the prince of the air, He's saying that, indeed, we aligned ourselves with the devil himself. We stood directly against God, our creator. And we hated him as our very own enemy. Again, we're seeing that there's not a gray area whatsoever here. If one is not open to the kingdom of God, if he's not there with God, then he's in the kingdom of the world. Then he's in the kingdom of Satan by default. He's aligned himself with God's mortal enemy. So this serves as a warning for all of us in a couple of different ways. First, it serves as a warning to those who have become proud of their salvation, who think that they deserve their salvation. Because it reminds us that, no, we were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked. We were those who were under God's wrath. We're not better by nature than those who have not come to Christ. But it also serves as a warning to those who don't think that they need saving. It says to them that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. That you are in the kingdom of Satan. That you're following, following after the prince of the power of the air. He's saying that with the rest of humanity, we are corrupted to the core. They would disobey God. So once again, we see that the natural condition of man is disobedience to God and by nature, his enemies. And again, Paul shows us in our passage how deep this corruption goes. In verse 3, he says that we were among those who, who walked against God. We conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. We fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we think back to our initial analogy, the man who just needed to take that little bit of medicine. All he needed to do was choose to let that roll to the back of his throat. 
we see that it's not a matter of choosing to take that medicine because the man is dead, just like we were. It's a matter of the heart. We would never choose to take that medicine on our own. We have no positive desire for Christ, no positive desire for salvation outside of the Holy Spirit coming to us and remaking our hearts from scratch. What would we do on our own? What would we do if Christ has not come to us? Well, verse 3 lists several things that we would do, that we do do. We fulfill the lustful desires of our flesh. We fulfill the sinful desires of our flesh and our minds. We would do whatever in a phrase, whatever sounds good to our corrupted hearts. These could be all sorts of desires. Pornography, giving in to anger, giving in to greed. And the list goes on and on. So where does this finally leave us? What does this all lead to? What does this death bring us to? Paul says at the end of verse 3, And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. God created man good, but in Adam we fell, and our nature has been completely corrupted ever since. Without a mediator, without a savior, without God's direct intervention, that is exactly where we would remain, dead in our sins, children of wrath. There would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no hope for us whatsoever. The story ends here. So I ask you, and I ask myself this morning, have we wrestled with how serious sin is? Have we grasped how deep it goes and what a major problem it is? It's not just a mistake here and there. No, our sin is a condition. It's a corruption of the heart. Our souls are destroyed. And it leads us to act out in sinful ways. And it ends in the wrath of God himself. And so yes, congregation, the bad news really is that bad. If we think back to our original illustration, this man was not sick. He was dead. And so as we lay dead in our sin, motionless on that deathbed, it's not a medicine that we need. It's resurrection that we are in desperate need of. And so praise God that the story does not end there. For however bad that bad news is, the good news is so much sweeter. So let's look with me at Ephesians 2 verse 4, that turning point, that beautiful, beautiful turning point. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God. Two small three-letter words. Two little words that make an indescribable amount of difference to this passage. We just witnessed how dark and ugly sin is, how dark and ugly our hearts were, that we were in this position of death, that we were under the wrath of God. And yet these two glorious words burst through as rays of hope. But God. The world was lost in sin. We were enemies of God. We were by nature children of wrath. Now what? But God. The one who was rich in mercy. The one who loved us. 
So suddenly this beautiful ray of hope shows us two things that we can learn immediately about God just from this short verse. First, that he is rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy. And so this God indeed is just. His law, as we saw, comes to it this morning. It points out our sin. And we know that, we knew that we were lost. We knew that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But this God is also merciful. We also read that why he has done this great act of mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. So this God is just, yes, but he's also merciful and very loving. And note that he's done this, as Paul says there in verse 4, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And Paul can't get away from the theme of grace. In verse 5, he says, by grace you have been saved. He runs back to it in verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's a, what? A gift of God. Not works, lest anyone should boast. See, we often get a bad rap in the Reformed faith. People look at our recognition of total depravity and they think that all we focus on is sin. However, what we are rightfully recognizing is that we cannot save ourselves. We were dead in our sins. We see humanity's true colors for what they really are. We take sin and its consequences very seriously. We know our own helplessness because of what our Lord Jesus Christ says in John chapter 6. He says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. In congregation, this is why the gospel is such beautiful, glorious, and good news. This is why we can give God so much glory and praise, because our salvation is his work from the beginning to the end. It's by his grace alone. You've not been nursed back to health by a little bit of medicine. No, congregation, we sit here this morning as those who have been raised from the dead. It's by grace we have been saved, and Paul cannot get away from running back to this. His language is very emphatic. Our Father loves his children so much that he sent his one and only Son to die for them. In 2 Corinthians 5, we have another beautiful picture of what God has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took his own spotless, blameless son, the one who had never sinned, the one who agreed to come in the world and agreed to die for those who were corrupted by sin. What a glorious Savior that is. John 4, verse 10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be propitiation for all of our sins. The one who would set aside God's wrath, the one who would take those sins and cover them in his blood. 
And our salvation is by faith. It's not by works. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here, brothers and sisters, the glory for our salvation goes to God alone. Not one dot to us. Such love has to drive us to our knees. Such mercy, this beautiful mercy the Lord has poured upon us, must drive us to praise. Yes, our sin is great. We can never truly plumb the depths of our sin. But also we can never plumb the depths of God's grace and mercy to us in Christ. This is a message that demands an answer. It's a message that indeed sounds too good to be true, but isn't. Hearing of God's rich mercy and love towards us demands a response from us. If this message is not received in repentance and faith, then the hearer remains dead in those sins and trespasses and continues to walk day by day in them. But for those who hear this good news with faith and turn away from the ways in which they once walked, only done by God's grace, then his love and mercy is theirs. And it's marvelous and more deep than we can even begin to comprehend. And so with me, congregation, celebrate this glorious hope that we have in the good news. Remember that you can never earn God's favor. You can never turn away God's wrath on your own strength. But another has for you, and that is Christ. God's one and only begotten Son. So we were dead in sin. We were saved by grace. And today we find ourselves thoroughly alive in Christ. We've been saved by His grace. We've been made truly once again alive in Him. But what does it mean that we are made to be alive in Christ? Well, our passage emphasizes four different things this morning. So we read it once again, Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. God made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the first aspect of being made alive together with Christ should seem obvious. It's life. Dead souls are now living. But it's life in more than one way. People who were enemies of God, who were walking according to the ways of Satan himself, have been brought near to God once again, able to follow his way, brought into his kingdom. And so they're spiritually alive once again. But not, not only do we have the hope of being made spiritual, spiritually alive, that we live that out day by day, but we have the hope of a physical resurrection, just as Christ was raised one day. And so physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection are ours in Christ. The second aspect of being made alive with Christ is a reign and a rule that we have with him. We will be made, we will be made to reign with him in the ages to come, the second half of verse 6. Christ obviously has the final word, but in him we go out amongst the nations. As we read in Second um, Corinthians, we're the ambassadors of that good news. We have his authority to bring the gospel to those who have not heard it. We also read a third marker of what this life in Christ means in verse 7. We were objects of God's mercy for the, all the world to see. Again, in service of the gospel, that the world may see how merciful 
and how loving God is. Our lives become witnesses to the world of the gospel of God. He's been doing this all along. Think of the life of Ruth. She was a woman who was a Moabitess, an uh, idolater, an enemy of God. And yet the Lord worked in her heart and brought her into his covenant community. He used her even to bring about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Think of the life of Joseph, the one who was, was put away by his brothers, left for dead. And what does God do? He shows his mercy and kindness to Joseph that the church and the world may see it. Israel herself was a country set apart from the world to be different, that the Lord could show the world his mercy and that she could bear witness to him by her works. So we've been raised with Christ. We reign and rule with him. We're Christ, uh, God's objects of mercy, that the world may see the good news. And fourth congregation, we are God's workmanship, recreated in him. In verse 10 we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Each one of us is God's workmanship, chosen to be in his Son, Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image, to serve and obey him, to witness to his name, and to proclaim this glorious mercy and this lordship in the new way in which we now walk as people who have been raised from the dead. We do this as those who have been resurrected, those who have been brought from darkness into glorious light. And we have a joyful message indeed of great love and great mercy. So good works are never the basis for our salvation, but they certainly do flow out of our salvation. These good works that we do are a result of what Christ has done in us. And it's incredible to think that the Lord has prepared these good works for us before the foundations of time. Again, we see God's mercy at work here. Those who were dead are now made alive, but not just alive. Alive and available to do work in his kingdom. And congregation, this is the Christian life. Covered in God's mercy, we live out his work in us. It's a life of repentance. We shun the ways in which we once walked. We battle the flesh every day. We do it imperfectly, and yet we are examples for the world to see of the grace of Christ. How merciful is our God. Not only does he take those who were his enemies and make them alive, he remakes us and he uses us for his vessels in his kingdom. He's in the habit of using broken pots. He's in the habit of using bent arrows and making them straight again. Each one of us is his workmanship. And he's using us for work in his kingdom. And he's planned it before the foundations of the earth. So congregation, let us together in our hearts this morning, let us say together, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. We celebrate and serve the one and only God who has saved us from our sins. Amen.